Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Okay, a guy walks into a church and he finds the pastor and he says, Preacher, I I need you to pray for help with my hearing. And without missing a beat, the preacher grabs the head of this guy and he starts to shake it. And he'd seen a faith healer do it. So, Lord, you know, and then he does something he saw a faith healer do. He sticks his fingers in his ear and he, and he's like, just cast out that unclean spirit, Lord. And he yells and he prays and he works up a sweat for about four minutes. And then the, finally the preacher asks, how's your hearing now? And the man says, I don't know, Reverend, I'm doing court Wednesday. <laughs> now, what the preacher did, that may have been a lot of things. It, it may have been what he thought was spiritual. It may have been kind. It may have been done even with good motivations. But something it was not was wise. And Andy Stanley is a preacher in Atlanta who's been helpful to me in this respect. He talks a lot about ultimately narrowing down our questions to one question, maybe the, maybe the best question, uh, a question that would hopefully bring clarity to all the other questions. And here it is. What is the wise thing to do? What is the wise thing to do in this situation, in this circumstance? Think about how asking that question might serve all other questions you have, like, should I take this job? Um, Is she the one for me? Um, Should I rent or own? Should I stay or leave? And the real question for every one of those really is, what is the wise thing to do? Because wisdom is the key to avoiding, I think, what is the most important thing in the world to avoid, regret. Really, think about your your greatest regret. Have you got it in your mind? Couldn't it have been avoided if you had asked yourself what was the wise thing to do? Nobody plans on blowing up their life or doing something dumb or miscalculating. The problem is that we don't plan not to do that. We don't think about searching out wisdom on the front end. We just realize that we didn't use it in retrospect. But what is is wise? Where do you find wisdom? Because it's not simply about being kind of intellectually gifted. How do we know that? We know that because there's a number of very smart people who do very dumb things, right? Things that are terribly unwise. Um, For example, I don't know uh, if you knew it was revealed recently that Bill Gates, some say might be the smartest person alive. 
met repeatedly for an extended period of time and not suitable locales with Jeffrey Epstein, who by this point had already had all kinds of charges and red flags and reports. And so when confronted with this, the statement that came from Bill was, uh, Mr. Gates regrets ever meeting with Epstein and recognizes it was an error in judgment to do so. Um, it also came out that it played a part in the ending of his 27-year marriage to Melinda, who objected strongly at that time that he was spending time with Epstein. Bill Gates is a super smart guy. Nobody would deny that. And he did something super dumb. And he admits it. But why did he do it? What's the nature of this kind of foolishness. There's this uh, doctor, Dr. Mortimer Feinberg and John Tarrant, he wrote about this in their book that was uh, appropriately titled, Why Smart People Do Dumb Things. And their answer was interesting. It, it wasn't that these people weren't book smart or that they weren't even geniuses in certain areas uh, that, that made them famous or successful. The, the point was that they were. They were these things. They were book smart. They were geniuses. But here was the breakdown. They were dumb in areas that we don't often think about or talk about. Areas that we don't think we need to be smart in. Areas like pride, arrogance, self-absorption. Those of you who are students of history in the room, uh, you'll know this. In her book, um, The March of Folly, the historian Barbara Tushman came to the same conclusion. She looked at all these calamities in history from the Trojans, you know, taking that wooden horse inside the walls, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, America's debacle in Vietnam. And she noted that behind each one of these historical events, things like excessive ambition, decadence, perversity, were to blame. And so when you study wisdom, what it takes to be wise and what it takes to be a fool, it's not about information. It's not about facts. Wisdom flows from character. Okay? To be life smart, you need to be soul smart. And that's what we're going to find James in this amazing letter. Uh, that, uh, that we believe might be the oldest letter in the New Testament. And, and um, he's going to detail in this installment about what it means to be wise. And so let's dig into James chapter 3, beginning verse 13. I'm going to ask Sophia if she would come and read uh, chapter 13 to us. Where's she at? Uh-oh, hope the rapture didn't happen because that's embarrassing for all of you people. <laughs> Really? Already? Checkity check. Check. Here we go. Okay. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by good deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Very good. That's an interesting definition of wisdom. It's kind of counterintuitive even. It's like... Um, James is telling us that being book smart isn't enough because wisdom is not just acquired information. I, I kind of wish it was. I'm a reader. 
I'm a collector of facts. I'm an Enneagram 5 for those of you who know what that means. But according to James, wisdom has something to do with something more than that. A life that applies spiritual truth. And because wisdom isn't just knowledge, it's practice. It's practice. It's decision-making. It's a lifestyle. It's not about doing well on an IQ test. It's about doing well on a life test. It's um, It's not just knowing truth. It's the practice of truth. Does it feel like we've been saying that every week? Maybe because we have. It's such a huge idea for James. Um, Let me just give you a couple words for your word of the day calendar. Words that, you know, you can whip out at parties to impress your friends and neighbors. We tend to think that wisdom is orthodoxy, which is right thinking. It's actually, I think, orthopraxis, which is right living. Orthodoxy, right thinking, orthopraxis, right living. Now, orthodoxy is super important. It's, it's, it's right thinking. But if you stop there, you're not wise. You're just an educated fool. James is all about orthopraxis, right living. And so how do we get on the path to that kind of wisdom? Well, James already has given us a hint. Sophia, why don't you come read that one more time for those who weren't listening, all right? James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Very good. Okay. So real wisdom is a rightly lived life, one that flows from wisdom, which is marked most often by a singular trait. What is it? It's on the screen, so that might be a hint. Oh, humility. And what is humility? Well, let me show you. What's he doing? For those listening on the podcast, the pastor's taking off his shirt. Um, Galatians, Galatians 6.3. You're not that important. You can look that up if you think uh, it's not in the Bible. Uh, why, is it, why is humility so critical? for living a wise life, because that's what makes you teachable. That's what opens you up to the wisdom that can flow in. It takes humility to learn. It takes humility to admit what you don't know. Humility to realize where you need to grow. Uh, Only a humble person is a learning person, a teachable person. Most of us have, have heard of Socrates, the, the, the ancient Greek philosopher whose, whose very name is synonymous with wisdom and intellect. There was this legend attached to uh, his great wisdom. Um, the, the Oracle of Delphi pronounced that no one in the world was wiser than Socrates. And that puzzled Socrates because he didn't see himself in that light. Um, he was the wisest man in the world because he knew he wasn't wise at all. And that made him teachable. James is going to take us deeper in on this because there's, there's more to wisdom than humility. But first, he's going to show us how we can be fools. And again, it's going to be surprising because I don't think... Um, this would be our first definition or description of fool. So I'm going to ask Sergio to come up. James 3, 14 to 16. 
If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you, you will you find disorder in every evil practice. Very good. Nicely done. That's not maybe what I would have expected as a definition of foolishness. If I told you you were going to look for the Bible's prescription for, for wisdom and specifically what makes uh, smart people do dumb things, um, I wouldn't have started with a conversation about envy and selfish ambition, um, which is why maybe we need to dig into this a little bit because there's something here that we probably aren't used to hearing. First, what exactly is bitter envy? And what is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the art of self-promotion, okay? It's seeking attention for ourselves. It's pursuing glory. It's trying to, to push our own agenda or promote ourselves, which um, when you are preoccupied with your own reputation, your own platform, your own success, your own influence, Envy is a little more subtle. It's a, a little less recognized. In fact, when we think of envy, we, we tend to think of it maybe as not such a big deal. I mean, isn't it just sort of looking at somebody and wishing you had a little of what they had? Uh, is, there, is there a lot of harm in that? But that's not the real dirt on envy. And it's, it's not why it's talked about throughout the Bible as one of the deadliest sins and it's been marked that way throughout Christian history as one of the deadliest sins. It's made a certain top seven list that you may have heard of. And, um, you know, anger, sloth, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, envy. Here's what is so deadly about envy, I think. Envy left unchecked. Envy given a free reign in your life. It goes on a relational warpath. How does that work? Well, it begins with desire. We see something that somebody has or can do or has achieved and we wish we had it or we wish we could do it or we wish we had achieved it. So someone makes $50,000, you envy the person who makes $150,000. Somebody is a C student, you envy the person who's an A student. But that's just where it begins. If left unchecked, the desire for that thing uh, turns into a dislike for the person who has that thing. In fact, that's what the word envy means. It means to, to look on someone with malice, to have an evil eye towards someone. You don't celebrate what they have or what they've done. You actually resent them. You, you, uh, it becomes personal, almost as if they are getting or experiencing what rightly belongs to you. So this isn't just about desiring something. It involves like hostility towards another person. It's, it's, it's relationally toxic. So check this out. Envy then enjoys the bad things that happen to that person that you envy. Envy leads to a celebration of their pain, their failings, their mistakes, their losses. And you say, well, I don't do that. Yes, you do. So do I. It's subtle. 
but it creeps in. If you're a writer, do you secretly like it when the author of another novel fails? If you're a business leader, do you secretly enjoy it when a competing leader is investigated for financial malfeasance or, or a, another company files a weak quarterly earnings report? If you take pride in your lawn and while your neighbor goes on vacation, they forget to set the sprinklers and their lawn starts to look really bad. Do you kind of enjoy that? You fill in the blank. You know, the politician who falters, the, the pastor caught in sin, the athlete who gets injured on a team that you're not rooting for. Envy leads to celebration of those things, even if it's just a private little smirk. The Germans, oh, the Germans, Andre, they have a, they have a word, a great word. Correct my pronunciation. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. One more time. Schadenfreude. And <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making fun. It just means enjoying the suffering of others. Schadenfreude. But envy will want to take you even further down that rabbit hole. And it's, it, it, it's, it's, envy's ultimate goal is to destroy that thing, that person even that you envy. Envy's like, it's like rabies of the heart. It takes over. There's this old Jewish legend about um, a store owner who's visited by an angel. This is just a legend. The angel offers the man a wish that would give him anything he desired, but there's a catch. Um, his rival, whom he envied intensely, would receive double of whatever was granted to him. You want three more wishes? He's getting six. You want a million dollars? He's getting two million dollars. And without hesitation, the envious man wished to be blind in one eye. That's dark. That's dark. Envy will not stop until that which is desired is either possessed or destroyed. Now, let's remember what James is wanting us to see. He's wanting us to connect the dots here, the dots between envy and foolishness and a life of wisdom. So how, how does envy create a fool and tear away at wisdom? Um, beyond even the relational insanity, you know what else is so fundamentally foolish about it? Well, let's see if we can trace this back. First, when you envy, you are kept from looking at yourself uh, the way you should. When, when you fixate on someone else, it keeps you from looking at yourself, doesn't it? I'm sure you've heard that phrase, you know, the grass is always green on the other side of the fence. Well, really, maybe instead of looking at the grass on the other side of the fence, you should just water your own. Uh, when all you do is look at others in envy, focusing on what they have compared to what you don't, you never do what it takes to become what you were meant to be. And second, when you give in to envy, it keeps you from looking at others the way you should. Let's say someone has achieved a particular position that you would like to achieve in your field of expertise. Um, envy simply desires it, resents it, and the person who achieved it, and if not, if left unchecked, it'll seek to undermine that person and their achievement. 
Um, it takes you on a journey of desire and resentment and eventually destruction. But that doesn't actually do anything towards helping you, does it? It doesn't bring one bit of change or happiness or success to your life. What you should be doing is looking at them and their achievement and try to learn from them in admiration and humility. Remember, it's humility that makes you teachable. And so when you move past envy towards you know, a sense of security regarding who you are, how God has made you, and how God has made others, then you can actually begin to celebrate what, what others can do and how you can draw from their experiences and learn from their victories. People who, who once threatened you, um, who maybe you reacted to only with envy, can now be your mentors, your role models, your coaches. Envy will not only keep you from looking at what's, um, what needs attention in your life. It'll keep you from learning from others about how to take bigger hills, have bigger victories. It will eventually destroy whatever life you now have. It's ironic like that, that envy left unchecked seeks to destroy the very thing that we envied. But what is ultimately destroys is the one who is given over to envy. I don't suppose there's any Olympic fans in the room. Um, all right, one, good. Uh, it, gets, it gets complicated lately with geopolitical concerns and doping and fairness and all that. And I'm told the first Olympics was held in uh, 776 BC. This is like 800 years before Christ. And like today, they were held like every four years. And it ran like that, interrupted for like over a thousand years. The last uh, of those Olympic games, those ancient games were in 393 and they ended because of flooding and fires and earthquakes and invasions by the barbarians. And uh, then the Olympics returned, the, the, the modern Olympics as we know it in 1896. Well, there's a story from those ancient games in Greece about this, this prized athlete who was so good that his fellow citizens erected a statue in his honor. But there was, um, there was this bitter rival who was consumed with envy. And he went out each night to, he tried to destroy this statue by, by pushing it over. And, and it was heavy and he couldn't do it. So he'd go out every night and try and push over this statue of his rival. And wouldn't you know, uh, one day he was successful except that when it fell over, it fell on him and it crushed him to death. And that's an appropriate picture of envy, isn't it? It's the irony of envy that it puts all our energy into tearing down another person's accomplishments instead of achieving something for ourselves. And it ends up destroying us in the process. Um, Noah, help me out here. Um, now, now, you may have to back up, Roy, because uh, I'm going to do a little illustration here. Um, yeah, you know that story about the statue crushing? Uh, I'm going to try and, and pull Noah up here, and he's going to try and pull me down here. And I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to, you know, give him, give him uh, play with kid gloves, okay? Noah, how, how much do you weigh? 
65 pounds. Okay, I'm, I weigh a little bit more than that. Okay, let's, you try and pull me. What? Okay, all right. I'm going to pull you up here. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Noah, everybody, Noah. Isn't it true? Uh, I, I know, I have insurance for that. Isn't it true that it's just way easier to pull somebody down than try to raise them up? Isn't that true? It's just the law of emotional, relational, sinful gravity. It's so much, I'm out of breath, so much easier to pull somebody down than to lift them up. It takes 10 times the work to pull somebody up, but oh, it's worth it. It's worth it. When you're tempted to pull somebody down this week, will you do the harder work of of maybe a more fulfilling work of pulling somebody up, lifting them up? So with that in mind, what it means to be foolish, James then gives a snapshot of what God's wisdom looks like. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. It's the opposite of bitter jealousy and envy. I'm going to have Noah with his, you, got, you have breath for this? Yeah, me too. It's the last verse, James 3.17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, impartial and sincere. Nicely done. So James lists eight things here that we could build an entire series on, but let's just quickly go through them. First, wisdom is pure. Say pure which means you aren't thinking about yourself. You're free of self-seeking, self-promotion or position. You're free from ulterior motives. You're uncompromising in attitude, in spirit. Second, he says, wisdom is peace-loving. Say peace-loving, which means it is non-divisive. It's non-competitive. The goal is not friction, but peace. Do you know folks who just seem to bring chaos into the room? They seem to bring division wherever they go. They're likely not wise. And third, he says, wisdom is considerate. Say considerate. It it thinks of others. It's empathetic. A a good translation would be uh, that wisdom is, is gentle or patient in the sense of not being concerned with your rights, your needs, your desires. One, one translator called it, Sweet reasonableness. I like that. Fourth, wisdom is submissive. Say submissive. Wisdom is willing to yield to others, first and foremost to God, but also willing to yield to others. In other words, wisdom isn't power hungry. Fifth, wisdom is full of mercy. Say mercy. Mercy is caring about others who are going through difficult times. But more specifically, mercy is about what you demonstrate towards someone in a position of vulnerability when you have the power. That, that's a key test of character, isn't it? How do you treat someone when they are subject to you and you have more power? Mercy is where you have a position of power where you could take revenge, you could take advantage, you could punish or shame, but you don't. Six, wisdom is full of good fruit. Say good fruit meaning a life that is 
just notorious for loving deeds and good acts. There, there's not a trail of, of relations left behind you. But um, there's actually a trail of testimonies who are singing your praise. Seventh, wisdom is impartial. Say impartial. impartial. It's no respecter of persons. It isn't into favoritism, as Rocky preached a few weeks ago. It's not judgmental. It doesn't rank people in terms of their worth or value. It's, it's devoid of prejudice. Finally, wisdom is sincere. Say sincere. It's authentic. It's real. It's not phony baloney. It's not hypocritical. It's not two-faced. That's the anti-selfish ambition, anti-envy, anti-fool life of wisdom. And to sum it all up, James puts in this final word, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. In other words, that kind of wise living will be surrounded with peace. Um, not the, not the ambition that divides, not the envy, but peace, both in public and in private. The opposite of which is chaos and suffering that comes with foolishness, ultimately regret. So as you face all kinds of choices this week, choices every day, all kinds of dilemmas, relational landmines, maybe you would even ask yourself, what is the wise thing to do right now? And what is the wise thing to do? Well, now you know. Now you know. Let me pray for you. Jesus, uh, you said if we don't have wisdom, all we need to do is ask. Just ask for it. And the giver of good gifts will gladly, generously give wisdom to us. The good, good father who who won't give us a stone, who won't give us a lump of coal, but will actually instead give us that most precious gift of all, wisdom that comes from God. So Lord, we look to you this morning. We look to you and you only. We know that our help comes from you. Uh, give us vision. Give us wisdom. Our strength, our shield, our rock. We look to you, God. Amen. Amen.